standing, I invite you to do so. Take your Bibles either way and turn to Luke chapter 13. That's on page 872. If you'd like to uh, use a Bible from the church, you can grab that, turn to page 872 either way, uh, either, or you can go to Luke chapter 13. I want to read the first nine verses of Luke 13. This is God's word for us this morning. And here's what God says. There were some present at that time who told him about the Galileans, whose blood Pilate had mingled with their sacrifices. And he answered them, Do you think that these Galileans were worse sinners than all the other Galileans because they suffered in this way? No, I tell you, but unless you repent, you will all likewise perish. Or do, or are those 18 on whom the Tower of Siloam fell and killed them, do you think that they were worse offenders than all the others who lived in Jerusalem? No, I tell you. But unless you repent, you all will likewise perish. And he told this parable. A man had a fig tree planted in his vineyard, and he came seeking fruit on it and found none. And he said to the vine dresser, Look, for three years now I have come seeking fruit on this fig tree, and I find none. Cut it down. Why should I use up the ground? And he answered him, Sir, let it alone this year also, until I dig around it and put on manure. Then, if it should bear fruit next year, well and good. But if not, you can cut it down. You may be seated. Father, we are acknowledging that there is no word like your word. Every word of yours is true. And it's not just an old, archaic, dusty truth. It is a living truth. It is alive and active. And we would pray that even by the very Spirit who helped pen these words, that the Spirit would be at work stirring in our midst and our hearts this morning, that we would behold wonderful things from your word, that you would show us the Lord, that you would show us our need for repentance, even afresh this morning. For we pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, we're taking the summer and looking at some of the parables that our Lord Jesus gave. And this morning, the parable in particular that we're looking at is starting in verse 6. But we started in verse 1 of Luke chapter 13. Parables deal in comparisons. Some earthly or ordinary story, some earthly or ordinary thing is deployed and serves as a comparison for some 
heavenly or spiritual reality, some heavenly or spiritual truth. Some of the parables that we've looked at thus far provide an explicit explanation. Jesus would tell the parable, and then his disciples would grab him later and go, huh, could you explain the meaning of this parable to us? And he would then say the parable means this, and and he would explain the parable by way of a verbal explanation. Some of the parables are given aid in understanding their meaning in that they are embedded to a situation or a conversation or a story. And I think that's an example of this one here. Uh, The interpretive help for today's parable is the preceding story or situation uh, that, that is dealt with leading up to the parable. So in verses one through five, we, we read of a situation. We read of a conversation that Jesus had with some, some other folks. And, 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 when we, and when we lock in on the importance and the point of that conversation, then I would suggest to you that, that it helps us then to know what's, what's the meaning of the parable, what's the point of the, the parable. So let's look at the situation for a moment in verses 1 through 5. Some folks have, um, what Jesus in the preceding chapter had been talking about the coming judgment. And uh, I'm sure that probably stirred up a little of angst and fear uh, in, in, in people's lives. And, and I think it's, it's, it's in that context that, that these people then brought to Jesus this uh, story of a, of a horrific tragedy, the best I can piece it together, of something that Pilate did to some of the Jewish Galileans as they went to the temple. Apparently, maybe Pilate had them butchered, uh, slaughtered, killed. Uh, and and uh, I suppose they've come to Jesus with this story in light of what Jesus had just talked about ref- in reference to judgment. I suppose they want Jesus to, to give them some sort of assurance that, 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 hey, you guys have nothing to worry about. Um, and yet... And yet, Jesus flips it and uses it for an occasion to call each of them to their own need for repentance. There were some present, beginning in verse 1 again, uh, at that very time who told him about the Galileans whose blood Pilate had mingled with their sacrifices. You get the sense from the way Jesus responds that... um, they, um, fearful of this notion of judgment, they, they talk to Jesus about this tragedy that has happened to some of the Galileans, kind of with the notion of these must have been really bad people. I mean, look at the bad thing that happened to them. Pilate had them butchered or slaughtered. And, um, and so, you know how it works. Um, if bad things happen to you, that's because you're bad people. Right, Jesus? Could you, should you tell us that? And, and then, and then kind of hug us and tell us we're good people uh, so, so that you won't scare us about what you've just said about the, the coming judgment. These bad people got, had the bad coming to them. And we're good people, right, Jesus? Uh, and so good things will come our way. Bad things like that won't come our way. And so Jesus I think sensing that that's what is predicating their 
pointing out to him about what happened to these Galileans, says, um, do you think that these Galileans were worse sinners than all the other Galileans because they suffered in this way? And then he drops the bombshell. This is, these are hard words. <laughs> but they're hard words that he, re, he states in verse 3 and he restates in verse 5. So they, they're hard words, but they must be vital, really important words. No. I tell you, unless you Repent. You will all likewise perish. And then he brings up an, another tragedy along that. Or so, uh, do you do you do you uh, do you think that those um, on whom the tower, those eighteen on whom the tower of Siloam fell and killed them, uh, do you think that they were worse offenders than all the others who lived in Jerusalem? Nope. I tell you. Unless you repent, you will likewise perish. Jesus has just confronted them. He's confronted them with the notion that um, they think that they are somehow superior to the Galileans who were butchered by Pilate or the uh, people of Jerusalem on whom the Tower of Siloam fell. And, and that they are, therefore, since they're better than those guys, they, they would be somehow exempt from such harm, from such tragedy. And what Jesus is correcting them in their understanding is uh, with the assumption that you guys are not any better than those guys. And in fact, the reason why a building hasn't fallen upon you, the reason why B Pilate hasn't butchered you is not because you're better than those whom these tragic things have happened, but because God is patient. God is patient. He has given you a reprieve at this moment from the justice that would otherwise fall upon them. They have been given a reprieve that they would have an opportunity to repent. They've not been butchered yet. The buildings haven't fallen on them yet. Uh, the, their destruction has been delayed because they've been given a temporary stay for the purpose of repenting. Now, those are hard words. You could just summarize what Jesus says in verse 3 and verse 5 is, is repent or perish. Jesus talked that way to people? Jesus, the, 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 the one whom he himself said, I am gentle and lowly and humble in heart? Jesus talked to people like this? Jesus, of whom it is said, quoting from Isaiah, a bruised reed he will not break, a smoldering wick he will not quench. 
Could it be it's possible for Jesus to be gentle and lowly and yet be crystal clear in the warning to turn to God or perish? See, this is not just a... This is, we didn't just catch Jesus in a bad mood at this moment. He was feeling kind of crummy, and we just kind of caught him in the crossfire of a bad way, and he got kind of persnickety and grouchy and said, unless you repent, all of you will likewise perish. I'm like, well, okay, let's get Jesus away from the crowd for a little bit. He's just, you know, on edge, you know. No, the very first words that we have recorded out of the mouth of Jesus when he begins his public ministry in Matthew 4, 17, the kingdom of heaven is at hand. Repent. Repentance is not some like wild-eyed, crazy-haired presentation uh, uh, communicated by angry people. When the very embodiment of the love of God shows up in Christ Jesus, the first thing he begins to say to the crowds, the first thing that he would say to any of us this morning is repent, or we will all likewise perish. Jesus is not like the false prophets that the prophet Jeremiah spoke of. The prophet Jeremiah is speaking of these guys, said, uh, uh, they have healed the wounds of my people lightly, saying, peace, peace, when there is no peace. These false prophets said, you got nothing to worry about. You okay? You got this? But in Luke chapter 12, the preceding verse preceding chapter is Jesus himself says, I've come not to bring peace. He's come to, to announce judgment, to call forth repentance. And so the situation that we've seen here in the first five verses now becomes the, 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 the interpretive grid for understanding the point of the parable beginning in verse 6. And what's the point up to this moment? What's the situation present us with? Uh, the, the, uh, the complete necessity of repentance uh, and that that repentance demonstrate itself in evidence. Now, now, in that context, then we have a parable. He says there, and then he told this parable. A man had a fig tree planted in his vineyard and he came seeking uh, fruit on it and found none. And he said to the vine dresser, the guy, the, the workman working in the field, uh, in the vineyard, look, for three years uh, now I have come seeking fruit on this fig tree and I find none. Cut it down. Why should it use up my ground? That's the analogy, if you would, to Jesus saying, no, I tell you, unless you repent, you will all likewise perish. They are about to be cut down. So it's a fig tree in a vineyard. Again, this is not a horticultural talk from Joe this morning. 
This is a parable about repentance, about the necessity of repentance. But, and yet, before we're done, it's about the gracious nourishment that the Lord gives that his people might be a repentant people. Now, uh, as is true with uh, other parables we've seen so far, what, what this parable compares to and means is, is, uh, is different than what this parable compares to and means, even though it might refer to the same thing. So, for instance, the seed in one parable is not what the meaning of the seed is in another parable. Well, here in this parable, uh, the imagery is that of God the Father is the owner of the vineyard, and it is Jesus, the Son, who is the vine dresser, the worker in the vineyard, which is very different than the imagery, like in John 15, of the parabolic metaphor there where Jesus says, I'm the vine, and my father is the vine dresser. So, so just that, that episode is teaching something different. It's not in contradiction to what's going on here in Luke. The, the point of John 15 is different and unique from the point of, of Luke 13. But in this parable, in a sense, we have the father, the owner of the vineyard, um, who's been expecting fruit from his fig tree in his vineyard, and he's getting no um, uh, uh, harvest from this tree. And so he's done. Cut her down. It's taken up precious space in my vineyard, and uh, I'll just... I'll just plant some more trees and wait for that gestation period until they start bearing fruit. But the vine dresser appeals to the owner and says, Sir, give me one more year. Let it alone. This is where we see the patience of the father, the, the patience displayed in the episode of the, the, the tragedy upon the Galileans and the tragedy upon the Tower of Siloam falling on the people of Jerusalem. And, and, it, and it says, why haven't you perished yet? Because the father is patient. Sir, give it one more year. And, and, and in the meantime, I, I, I tell you what I'll do. I'll, I'll dig up around, I'll cultivate uh, that fig tree and I'll, I'll fertilize it uh, I'll, I'll add the nourishment that it's needed and then next year let's see what will happen in other words the point of the parable is the same point of the situation preceding the parable and that is this the word to those who heard it originally is really the same word to those of us this morning. Take your pulse. If you've got one, there's still time to repent. There's still time to turn from yourself. There's still time to turn from your sin. There's still time to turn to Jesus, because that's really what repentance is is and what it consists of. Repentance on one level and is a change of heart that our mind thinks differently, that our affections feel and desire differently, that our will chooses differently, and that change of heart results in a change of life, a change of direction, a change of trajectory, a change of priority, a change of the way one lives. Say there's still time to do that. There's still time this morning to change your heart 
resulting in a change of direction. There's still time to repent. Now, I would just add as a sidebar, I'm fully aware of the fact that in, in many of these parables, parables particularly such as these, I think when Jesus is speaking originally, I think he's particularly has in his mind the people of Israel. All throughout the Old Testament, many places in the Old Testament, the people of Israel, the nation of Israel is likened in some sort of plant, a, a fig tree or, a, or a, an olive tree or a vine of some sort, and, and that, and that they, are, they, are, they are living in God's vineyard. God is, is nourishing them and providing for them, and, and, and yet God has called them in covenant relationship to bear fruit, to display that they live in a vital relationship with the owner of the vineyard and, the, and, and demonstrate the work of the vine dresser in the, in the vineyard. Israel had been cared for immensely. Israel had been nourished constantly. And Israel, even now, who should have been first in line when Jesus began his ministry of calling forth repentance, Israel was actually first in line to be obstinate and to refuse repentance. And so on the one hand, he's talking to the nation to whom he was promised to arrive to. He came unto his own, and his own received him not. And, and yet, while we could think about this passage and other parables like this of having Israel itself in, the, in, in, in its sights, I think, by the way, the Apostle Paul would... Uh, uh, unpack some of these things, the Apostle Paul would apply it not just to Israel and say this has no relevance to us, but the Apostle Paul would show that what has unfolded in Israel's life is illustrative for what must uh, uh, be alive and well in our lives. For instance, let me just read a portion of Romans chapter 11 for us. Romans 9 through 11 really tries to answer what's up with Israel. I mean, God promised them all kinds of things about the Messiah, and um, they've really kind of missed it, haven't they? I mean, are we done with, with Israel? Uh, and, and this is what Paul says. I'm jumping into the middle of a conversation, and starting in verse 20 of Romans chapter 11, he says, they were broken off because of their unbelief. Israel has been set aside. In a sense, Jesus comes to Israel in, in the Gospels, and, and he appeals to them to, to repent and to bear fruit in keeping with repentance. This is the time. We have one more year, sort of speak, if you would, uh, before it's cut down. Well, how, now from Paul's perspective, that cutting has occurred. They were broken off. They were cut off because of their unbelief belief, Paul says in Romans chapter 11, verse 20. But you, you, believers, whether it's Jews or Gentiles, no, regardless of one's ethnicity, uh, the people can now be joined in, in, in God's vineyard. But you stand fast through faith. So do not become proud, but fear. For if God did not spare the natural branches, neither will he spare you. And he says this, note the kindness and the severity of God. Severity toward those who have fallen. And in that context, he's talking about Israel, just like in this gospel context immediately, he's talking about the nation of Israel. 
the severity toward those who have fallen, but God's kindness to you provided you continue in his kindness. And he closes, otherwise you will be cut off. So while the immediacy of Jesus' words in Luke 13 are a particular appeal to the nation of Israel, by the time we get to where we are at today, in light of the Apostle Paul's explanation of how things have unfolded, this, this word to Israel to not delay repentance but to be earnest and immediate in repentance is a word for you and I, regardless of what ethnic background we originate from. A repentant faith is the means of and the expression of continuing in the Lord's kindness. The Christian life begins through faith and repentance. It begins when at a moment in time, and for many of us, it's a moment in reference to our past experience, but for some of us, it might be a moment right out here in a moment. It might be for the very first time you understand that, that it is our sin that separates us from a holy God, that, that God would be just to crush us under the condemnation and weight of our sin, that, that he would be just to bring forth his wrath as a holy response to our sinfulness. And, and yet God had sent his one and only son who lived a perfect life who deserved no condemnation, in fact, who earned a perfect life of righteousness, who earned all of the blessings and glory and honor from his Father through his perfect obedience. And yet it is this perfect Son of God who goes to the cross, and at the cross, he dies for our sins. On the cross, he takes your sins and my sins, the sins of any and all who would turn from themselves and trust only in Jesus, and he bears up under the curse and the condemnation and the judgment of our sins. That, and, and the Christian life begins that as we realize that, as the light bulbs go off, as our heart sparks to life, as our eyes are open, then we turn from ourselves and we turn to Jesus and we trust him. And yet that's just how the Christian life begins. How does the Christian life go from that point? The way the Christian life began is the way the Christian life continues. For those of us who at some point in our past have turned from our sins and ourselves and we've turned to Jesus and are trusting only in him, then the duty for today is re-up. The duty for today, throughout this day, throughout this week, throughout this month, throughout the entire duration of while we still have a pulse, we are to turn from ourselves constantly, continually, and we are to turn to Jesus. As we turn from our sins, we are to turn and to embrace him as the only Savior who has atoned for our sins and the only Lord who has the right 
to rule over us. You see, the warnings in Luke 13 are warnings for us. They're warnings for any who have never turned to Jesus to begin with. It's clear if you've never turned to Jesus before, this morning is the morning to do that. Walk away from your sin. Turn your back on your own self and embrace the life and the joy and the peace and the salvation and the adoption that comes only through the Lord Jesus Christ. Turn to Christ this morning. Trust only in him. But what about the rest of us? What do we do next? More of the same. More of the same. We gather this morning as people who have, at some point, in a point of beginning, turned and repented and trusted in Jesus. And we gather this morning, we're back, and we're in need of more turning to Jesus, more turning from our sins, and more turning from our Selves. And these warnings in Luke 13 are warnings to those who have never turned to Jesus, and they are warnings to those who have turned to Jesus. That we are here again this morning to turn to Jesus. We are here again this morning to turn from ourselves, to turn from our sins, and to trust only in Jesus. And these warnings that we find elsewhere in Scripture, but here this morning, unless you repent... Not just one and done, but unless you and I live a habitual pattern in life of repenting time and time and time and time again, we will perish. Warnings to persevere in our relationship with the Lord with a repentant faith is the occasion in which the Lord preserves his children and gets each of his children home. In other words, if you could hear the warnings, if you could hear this morning, unless you repent, you will likewise perish. If you can hear that and go, I'm good, I'm good. I ain't got nothing to worry about. I'm living for me. It's all about me. Then you are the chief who should be hearing these kind words of warning. Your tree has not been cut down yet. You have much to worry about with a sense of prideful hubris. Turn from yourself, turn from your sin, and trust only in the Lord Jesus Christ. You see, it is necessary that we be people whose lives are marked by repentance. Now, a part of that, the backstory of this is, well, if my life should be characterized by repentance, that kind of supposes that my life has still got categories and crevices and uh, aspects of sin and mess. Uh-huh. Yep. And uh, since this is such an encouraging message to begin with, you don't know the half of it. There are still pockets and vestiges of mess and gunk and sin and selfishness and hubris and pride in our lives that, that the Lord hasn't even showed us that yet because we can't quite get it. We're just still on step two. 
And he's got a whole gradation of steps for us to grapple with as he grows us. And, and so it's absolutely necessary that we are people who are, whose lives are characterized by repentance because we are certainly people whose lives are still characterized by sin and disobedience and apathy and, and disobedience. But here's what Jesus does for those who are his. Just like the vine dresser dug up around the tree and nourished it. You realize that Jesus is not about to let you go. If you belong to him, if you've turned and trusted in him, then he will do what is necessary to keep your heart turning and trusting in him. He will dig up around your life, and some of that might be just even be through affliction and the irritation of your soul. And, 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 and yet, along with uh, stirring up the dirt and uh, aerating or cultivating around your heart, he will also fertilize and nourish. Why would he do that? Well, he would do that on the one hand because that's just how deeply he loves his children but he would do that because the expression of his love is to result in the fact that as his well-loved children, we would be the well-loved children who would con continually and constantly be bearing the fruit of repentance. We would be the repentant people time and time again, turning from ourselves, turning from our sins, turning to Jesus and, 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 and that turning to Jesus is evidenced by, by further fruit in keeping with that repentance that we would live a life of love toward others, that we would live a life of obedience to God's word, that we would live a life that is rich and deep in good works for the glory of God and for the good of others. But that repentance that would give fruit in those ways must also be a repentance that is connected to, that it's a repentant faith. It's a faith and trust in Christ, that we would not merely be people who would turn from sin and self. We don't have a system of penance. We have a system of repentance, that we turn from sin and self and turn back to Jesus and that in turning to Jesus, we would find the one who is our comfort and who is our peace and who is our joy and who is our strength. But in turning to Jesus, we would be turning from anything or anyone else in whom we are seeking refuge, anyone or anything else who is providing us some sort of notion of strength and comfort and peace and joy and hope that we have erected idols in our lives. We need these to be comforted. No, we need Jesus to be comforted. We need Jesus to be strong, not someone or something else. It's not our stuff. It's not substances. It's not even other relationships that are the primary source of our strength and our hope and our comfort and our joy and our peace. No, it is 
Jesus. And the word of warning to us this morning is let us be a people who run to Jesus. Let us be a people who turn to Jesus. Let us be a people whose eyes are focused upon Jesus, looking to him, for only he can cultivate and nourish our hearts to have a faith that is repentant, that has a repentance that is bearing fruit in keeping with that repentance. Father, thank you for your word. Thank you for even your words of warning. We thank you for the kind patience that you show to us. You provide us so much promise and hope in your word, but you also give us warnings. So we would pray, Father, that we would this morning heed your kind, patient warning. By your Spirit, examine our hearts, Father. Show us where we need to be afresh, a repentant people, knowing that you have sent your Son by his Spirit to nourish and cultivate in our hearts a repentant disposition. For we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.